the film review podcast for movies most people have mercifully forgotten. I'm Dan. And I'm Conrad. And in each episode, we drag a forsaken film out of the oubliette, discuss it and judge it to decide whether it should be set free or whether it should be thrown back into oblivion forever. Seasons greetings, listeners. You've tuned your festive dials into Movie Oubliette episode 117, the Continental Circumferencing podcast with me, Dan, having just released a collaborative kids album here in Melbourne, Australia. Ah, and with me, Conrad, decorating my studio for its first Christmas in Cambridge, UK. Yes, yes. In this podcast, we mull over the finer things in life, fantastical cinema, horror, sci-fi and fantasy, because tis the season to abduct orphans. Hello, Conrad. (laughs) (laughs) It's that time of year again. It is. It's amazing, isn't it? Um, Happy holidays, everyone. I hope everybody's in a really good mood. I think we deserve it this year. Yeah, yeah. I feel like I feel like we're at the we're sort of past the pandemic. I know some countries yeah. aren't really like China, yeah. but yeah. everyone else <laughs> seems to be past it. So I feel like we're, we're going to have an actual non-COVID Christmas for once. Yeah, I think it'll be nice. And you've just released a, an album for children. I mean, what could be better? Yes, yes, yes. It's called Great Big Forest. Should be everywhere, Spotify, wherever you get your music. Uh, it, uh, it's under the artist. So my friends are Kaleidoscores, and I'm the Wistful Snail. But we've also got a few other people um, on a few tracks as well. But yes, a a lot of fun kids songs that are kind of not really for kids. Like, it's actually quite good music. Like, I'm really proud of the music that we've made. Even though we're, you know, singing about puppies and frogs and... Um, <laughs> you know all the Christmas? things. Christmas, uh, not Christmas, but um, all the fun things, oh. all the all the things that are sort of untainted and innocent, and you know wholesome. Oh well, we need that, especially at this time of year. Yes, yes, yes. And this is your first year <laughs> in your garden studio for Christmas. I know, and I'm getting so much trouble for it. So I, I bought a Christmas tree for my studio. It arrived. (laughs) I unpacked it and put it in the corner, just thinking, okay, it's in here. I'm not going to turn it on, but it's here. Honestly, the amount of criticism I've had from people joining me on calls for work Mm -hmm. over the past week, because it's too early. It's, it's, you know, it's got to be on Christmas Eve and only for the 12 days of Christmas. Honestly, Bar humbug. Yeah. I, I, you're lucky I don't turn twinkly lights on all year, frankly. <laughs> and I mean, like, yeah. listeners, you can't see this, but it's it's a very modest tree. It's it's not it's it not is. a full, you know, ceiling uh to floor tree or anything with, with the full get up of tinsel and everything. It's it's quite a it's a slim, modest tree in the corner of your of your studio. I know. I thought it was stylish, but no, I was just scorned, scorned by all of my Zoom callers this week. So I don't know. Yeah. Well, I'm enjoying it. Yeah. So there. Well, they're obviously not going to get presents from Santa this year, are they? 
Well, no, <laughs> they're the mean kids. <laughs> uh, speaking of, have we been hearing from our uh, listeners out there? What's in the mailbag today? Yes. Well, they've not just been writing to Santa, they've also been writing to us. When we asked people in the wake of the Hallow to name their favourite folk horror film, Back to Oz came to us with Krampus, very ah, seasonal. Yes, yes, yes. 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 They said when it came out, it was so exciting to have a new, fun and very creepy Christmas movie. And I wholeheartedly agree with that. And I'm very pleased I've got the 4K director's cut to watch this year. Mm, looking forward yeah. to that. I'm always so proud of that movie because it was filmed in New Zealand, even though it's not set in New Zealand. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, if you want snow at a different time of year, then... <laughs> That's right. Yeah. That's right. Uh, Eddie Coulter said, tough to choose, but the witch and the ritual are tied for my favourite. Good choices. Yes, yes. Very good choices. Love the ritual. Uh, Recent new patron, Miki, said, in the earth was so mesmerising to watch. Loved it. Wow, I haven't heard of that. Uh, It's a new Ben Wheatley movie. I don't know if you know Ben Wheatley I do like Ben Wheatley, yes. That one's a real, yeah, head scratcher. It's very, very um, atmospheric, I would say. Yes. Mm. Don't watch it and then go camping. (laughs) This is not a good idea. (laughs) We also heard from Nick Hardy, who said, I remember enjoying 2009's Hammer horror film Wakewood when I watched it years ago. A pagan folk horror in the realm of the Wicker Man, set in Ireland, starring Aidan Gillen and Timothy Spall, quite depressing and a bit derivative of other films but worth watching it's on amazon prime in the uk so might give it a rewatch sometime Ooh. okay hammer horror you mm. say i didn't know they were still making movies the label gets rejuvenated and dusted down and used i think they used it for the woman in black with daniel radcliffe oh, as well all right okay all right yeah I mean, it's got nothing to do with any of the people that were involved in it during its heyday, I don't think. But it's still a brand that's dusted down occasionally. Okay, right. And finally, we did, of course, hear from Surge of Cold Crash Pictures. (laughs) Merry Christmas, Surge. Uh, Merry Christmas, Surge. And he said, The Hallow is definitely a well-made film, but in trying to emulate its influences, it doesn't do much to distinguish itself. I hate the idea of not recommending it, but I also don't think it's the sort of film that demands to be rewatched. Good for one atmospheric weekend. Movies like this were made for movie oubliette. You better believe it's a coin of fate episode. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I don't disagree with him. Yeah, I think that's pretty apt. I think it is too, yeah. I think it's probably not not worth condemning completely, but I think it's, uh, yeah, certainly not a classic for the ages. Yeah, I I think especially after watching the behind the scenes, there is just so much passion and like love put into that movie. You know, yeah, you can't, definitely you can't disregard that. Yes. So thank you for writing to us. We love all of your love and passion that you put into following our show. <laughs> so please keep doing it. Yes, yes. Uh, so, uh, Conrad, I guess it is that time. Time to un- <laughs> unveil the Christmas movie for today. Gosh. What do we have in store? Yes, what will be our present under the tree? Well, let me just head on over to the oubliette and find out. Mm. Oh, one last time this year. Oh, gosh, it's so noisy and bright in here. Good grief. Wow, a lot of wood everywhere. I know. <laughs> so much hammering. And everyone's so happy. 
Oh dear, it's just like sensory overload. I'm grabbing the film and coming back. <laughs> it's so colourful as well. Ooh, gives me a real feeling of elf confidence. <sighs> Whew, okay, I'm back. Yes, so what do you have for us today? What's in your fist of hands? <sighs> okay, in my Christmas sack today, I have... Santa Claus the Movie, a 1985 Christmas fantasy adventure film starring Dudley Moore, John Lithgow and David Huddleston. It's directed by Jano Swark with a screenplay by David Newman and music by Henry Mancini. Ooh, okay. What happens in this one? Well, Santa Claus tells the origin story of the beloved festive father figure who began life in the Middle Ages as a kindly American man who loves handcrafting toys for all the children Mm -hmm. in an unspecified European village. After freezing to death with his wife and faithful reindeer in a snowstorm on Christmas Day, Merry Christmas everyone, Claus is resurrected and offered eternal life by Dudley Moore and his merry band of garden gnomes, I mean elves, and cursed to deliver toys to every child in the world every Christmas Eve for all eternity. Centuries later, Dudley attempts to industrialise the North Pole and his mass production techniques result in shoddy toys that single-handedly destroy Santa's reputation, giving unscrupulous 80s evil business tycoon BZ the opportunity to corner the Christmas market with the help of the newly exiled elf. Can Santa's friends, the oddly Dickensian street urchin from New York, (laughs) Joe, and BZ's niece, Cornelia, prevent BZ's hostile takeover, restore Santa's faith in humanity, and rescue Dudley Moore before his secret reindeer flying powder explodes? (laughs) Will Santa's reindeer finally execute the super-duper-looper at the most opportune moment? And will we all have a strange urge to eat McDonald's and drink Coke at the end of it? Find out (laughs) after the break. (laughs) Yes, and we'll have someone to join us to unpack this one. Oh yes, a lover of the film and an expert. Can't wait. Joining us for our festive feast today is a senior research fellow at Birmingham City University, co-host of the wildly successful Soda Joker on Songwriting podcast, which this year alone has featured the 1975 Nora Jones, Julian Lennon, Kiefer Sutherland and Bruce Hornsby. Wow. <laughs> That's just a handful of them. And the guy who once watched House in the house from House, it is, of course, Simon Barber. Hello, Simon. Hey. <laughs> Hello. Thanks for having me. Nice to see you, yeah, welcome back. It's great to see you back again. So uh, that's an amazing lineup for Soda Joker. Are there any highlights for you this year or things that you're looking forward to in the new year? Uh, just all the things you mentioned, really. They were all really nice memories of things that happened this year. Mm-hmm. We haven't really lined up that much for next year yet. I think we're just going to sort of take it easy because I, I guess the longer you do this, the more kind of picky you get about what you decide to do. Because, mm. you know, as you know, it's so much work putting these things together, isn't it? It is, so, yeah. We're just sort of um, holding back and, and trying to just 
stick with the very best opportunities i think at this point because otherwise you just run yourself ragged don't you editing Mm. hundreds of episodes (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah we know that feeling but have you gotten to that sort of critical mass point where you're sort of batting artists away because you're so popular we do get a lot of offers yeah yeah every day i have to say no to people and oftentimes it's just for reasons of capacity you know because it is just me and brian that do the podcast yeah so you know, if we get two or three really good offers in a day and they all want their episode to be out before the end of the year, oh, wow. yeah. <laughs> then it's like, well, <laughs> you know, that's just not going to happen, I'm afraid. So, yeah, we end up saying no to people that everyone would recognise, you know, people that oh, we wow. Yeah, which is a bit of a shame for us, really. We'd love to do all of them, but, yeah, it's just a, a case of it's a two-man job, this, you know, so. Yeah, wow. <laughs> and you have a day job as well. Yeah, yeah, we we both work pretty much full time, so it's hard to fit it all in alongside family and everything else, you know. Yeah, no, it's an amazing podcast. So if anybody out there has any interest, I mean, particularly, I love if you're looking for a movie crossover. You've interviewed people like Keith Sutherland and I think Kevin Bacon. Yeah, we've had several people on who have crossed over from film into music. You know, we've had, as you said, Kevin Bacon was on. Kiefer Sutherland, we spoke to Harry Shearer at one point, yeah. David Duchovny was on the show, Oh yes. so yeah, yeah, quite a few people who are, and, and they're all really accomplished musicians, you know, we, we talk in depth about their music and they, they really know what they're doing. Yeah, <laughs> oh amazing, yeah, definitely check it out people if you haven't already. So you're here with us today because it's our festive special and there's a particular festive movie that you've always been rather fond of, I believe. (laughs) Santa Claus the movie from 1985. I was wondering if you could kick us off by talking to us about uh, your first experience of seeing this movie, if you can remember it. I can, actually, yeah. You can? Okay. Yeah, I saw this movie. It must Well, I guess it must have been Christmas of 1985. Oh, wow. Um, but I saw it at the ABC Cinema in Lime Street in Liverpool. <laughs> so <laughs> Lime Street is the main train station in Liverpool. And as you come out of that station, in front of you, there is like a grade two listed Art Deco building which was, at the time, the ABC cinema, then it became the Canon cinema, I think, probably when Canon started taking over things. Um, And then, uh, I think it was an Odeon later, but at the time it was the ABC, and it was this gigantic building with a balcony and everything. But I think in the 80s they'd partitioned it into three screens. It used to be like one absolutely gigantic screen. But uh, it was still big, I remember, when I was a kid, although if I went back now, I guess it would be smaller. Mm. But um, (laughs) yeah, I I remember having to queue up for that. And my friend Brian, who I do my podcast with, he remembers queuing up twice for that movie and not getting in. And not getting in, wow. (laughs) Yeah, he he actually got in on this third attempt to see that movie. That's how popular it was in Christmas of 1985. Wow. So yeah, I remember seeing it then and obviously being blown away by, you know, the spectacle of it and the magic of it. But then as you get older and you revisit the movie, it becomes marginally more disappointing in, in some of its execution. So I'm, I'm, I'm fine with unpicking that magic. Okay. Yeah, revisiting it as an adult is quite an interesting experience. Mm. I probably saw it on TV in the 80s or maybe video rental because it was big on video as well i seem to remember Mm -hmm. dan i think this is a completely new experience for you isn't it yeah 
I'd never, I've never heard of this movie. Just <laughs> never, ever, never, ever. And I mean, I, I think it did flop when it came out, but for some reason it seemed to resonate with the UK. Like everyone in the UK has seen this movie. Well, it was shown in the UK on Christmas Eve every year for, I'd say, at least a decade. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so it was always on every year when I was growing up on Christmas Eve, it was shown on TV. So oh, it wow. became like a... A sort of perennial British yeah. favourite, I think. Right. Maybe just a twist of the licensing, perhaps, that we just had it, so it was just yeah. always on. Exactly. And I think, obviously, it's been superseded now by other much more entertaining Christmas movies, you know, comedies and whatnot. But at the time, there wasn't much else like it, I don't think. No. Right. Yeah, And I know John Lithgow has said that if he had a nickel for every time a British person has come up to him and said, you know... I adore this movie. Wow. Um, he did very well for that. <laughs> yeah, I think he calls it the tackiest movie he's ever been involved in. But at the same time, he is heartwarmed by all the Englishmen that come up to him blubbering about the BZ character that he plays in this ah, movie. Yes, 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 so yes, this yes. is a Salkind production. I'm not even sure I'm pronouncing that correctly, but... Yeah, Alexander and Ilya Salkind and Pierre Spengler. So the producing group behind the Superman movies and Supergirl. And I did not realise, I was reading an article from Cinefantastique from 1985, where they were talking to Ilya Salkind and he was saying that they never made any money on the Superman movies. <laughs> and so that's why they sold it to Canon, which you <laughs> mentioned before, Si. And uh, they did Supergirl, which... I think it was an unmitigated disaster as well. We mm. could look at that one at some point. So this was their attempt to do something magical and universal that would touch the hearts of every child in the world and the inner child in all the adults that took them excitedly to the cinema. So it didn't work. Mm. The film famously cost 50 million. There was a lot of discussion about the fact that it cost 50 million. Although that figure includes the prints and the advertising, they say in this interview. Oh, so it's probably okay. double what it actually is. It's probably actually 25. But still in today's money, that's about $178 million, mm. which is, you know, it's sort of a reasonable Marvel movie kind of cost. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it only yielded... 23.7 million at the box office debuting behind Rocky IV, King Solomon's Mines and One Magic Christmas which is my favorite Christmas movie. Right, yes. See, so yeah, it came in at number 12 and then just sank thereafter in the US box office. So it's considered a flop, but strangely in the UK we love it. <laughs> What's going yeah. on? Cuz it's not even a British it's set in America. Right, it, it's set in New York. Yeah, but it feels quite British. Yeah, a it? lot of you know all the elves seem to be British actors. Yeah, it's Dudley Moore in it. It feels a little bit like Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory to me in that sense. In yeah, that it, yeah. it's like filmed in Bavaria, but you're supposed to believe it's like this sort of non-place. <laughs> um, mm. I don't know quite. And and of course, Santa Claus movie was shot at Pinewood, wasn't it? So yeah. it's very British, and all of the sort of New York recreations feel very British. And it's packed with British actors. Yeah, but then all of the sort of uh, 
backdrop plates they use for the flying sequences are all you know World Trade Center and stuff. Mm. So yeah, yeah, because yeah. it's headlined by Dudley Moore, who's sort of like their packaging for Superman. They got Marlon Brando attached right at the beginning, and then went to Cannes and then sold it. And they said they were in profit even before the movie debuted, mainly because their approach was sort of packaging and selling off rights, TV rights and video rights. Right. Yeah, they attached Dudley Moore to it as an elf. On the back of, I think he'd had a string of successes in rom-coms like Arthur at the time. Mm -hmm. So they had him as their anchor and then just cast a load of pretty much unknowns around him, including, I mean, Santa Claus is a character actor, David Huddleston, who I don't recognise particularly outside the beard. Well, he was in uh, Big Lebowski in later years, wasn't he? But um, mm. I think oh, at the yeah. time he'd been in Blazing Saddles. Yeah. Right. And maybe a Smokey and the Bandit movie at some point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I saw Capricorn One was another movie he was in. Yes. I, don't, I can't remember his character. He was a scary senator in Capricorn oh, One, right, I okay. seem to recall. And John Lithgow, of course, chewing the scenery as <laughs> oh, the he, 80s staple evil businessman. He steals the show. <laughs> he must have been very hungry during that shoot because he, <laughs> he chews every bit of scenery in that movie. Yeah. <laughs> I loved his reactions because they were so unpredictable. Mm. Like he was just like a, a steaming pot ready to explode with whatever he could think of. Yeah. In a contemporary interview, he said that the director, Giano Swark, said to him, just go with it, do what whatever you want. And he said, I'm exactly the wrong actor to say that to. <laughs> His previous film being Buckaroo Banzai, where he really went down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Story-wise, it's a bit of an odd concoction. Mm. So it's sort of 40 minutes of origin story for Santa Claus, yes. which is essentially a period piece fantasy that's treated very earnestly. I think they took the same approach as Superman, where they have Marlon Brando say at the beginning, this is no fantasy. It's all very serious, the opening. Mm. I mean, it kicks off with this kindly man, Claus, who's the only American in medieval Europe. <laughs> and he likes making wooden toys and giving them to children. And then he and his wife, who have no children of their own, and their reindeer freeze to death in a snowstorm, <laughs> at which point Dudley Moore and his band of merry elves grant him immortal life as Santa Claus, and that's where Santa Claus came from. And then it switches to a modern-day story, mm. or a contemporary story in 1985, where it becomes kind of a story about the commercialization of Christmas versus what Christmas is truly about. And that's where he ends up pitted against John Lithgow. How do we feel about the balance of these two elements well you know when i was a kid i used to want to kind of fast forward to the new york stuff because that just seemed so much more <laughs> contemporary and modern and i guess i probably related more to the younger characters that come into it mm. but looking back now i can see it's probably at its best in the first quarter where you actually get <laughs> the, the the production value and the majesty of just santa's workshop and all of that stuff Mm. Um, and as you get into the New York stuff, it, it gets a little bit less logical and a bit more flimsy, I think. Yeah. Um, certainly visually. Yeah. It's, I, I mean, especially with BZ, the introduction of BZ, which is not until like an hour into the film as well. Yeah. So there's no point to the first half or first hour of the movie because i mean it is an origin story i guess but there's no villain there's no sort of like challenges to overcome or anything apart from setting the rules of 
you know, naughty kids don't get presents now because we've figured that out. You know, <laughs> that's the the biggest challenge that they have. So it does feel like two kind of separate movies. Yeah. And and like what you said, Simon, the, the sort of first half feels very much like a Willy Wonka uh, and the Chocolate Factory or like a Mary Poppins or a Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, like yeah. fantasy, like old school fantasy from like the 60s. I, th- yeah. I think it even shared the cinematographer, actually. I think the person who photographed Willy Wonka did this one as well. Right. Uh, Arthur Ibbotson, I think. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and the railway children. So... I mean, that probably explains why it feels so sort of classic children's mm, cinema. Exactly. Yeah. The production design is, it's impressive. I mean, certainly Santa's workshop, all of that stuff, you know, it looks like a massive fire hazard, but it's it's <laughs> all wood. Yeah. beautiful wood painted in primary colours. It's not a very lived-in universe. I'll give it that. I mean, it kind of looks like the play area in a MFI superstore, to be honest. <laughs> and that's a nice 80s reference, Conrad, MFI. <laughs> I know. Nobody else listening to this podcast is going to understand what I mean by that. Uh, yes, it's a hardware store that probably no longer exists. It definitely no but, longer exists. <laughs> no, okay. But it, it doesn't, I don't know, it's not terribly convincing, I don't think, the world they create. No, it does. It does feel like a soundstage was dressed, doesn't it? Yeah. And and I did read some negative reviews that said something like, "Oh, Santa must really love plywood" or something <laughs> like that. But, <laughs> but it it does have quite an epic feel. And when you're a kid watching that, and they open those big doors, and the light is at the end of the yeah, tunnel. I mean, yeah. it, it seems like incredible, doesn't it? It seems enormous and sort of it's a great spectacle. Yeah. And that whole sequence of him becoming Santa as well. And, mm. you know, the sort of ceremony that they go through, that that's quite mm. impressive as well. It is, yeah. Burgess Meredith comes across as this sort of ancient elf that blesses him. And Henry Mancini's score behind it is almost sort of religioso. And mm. it's, you kind of get the feels watching and think, wow, this is actually quite noble and heartwarming. Yeah, I think it's a sheer spectacle, like what you see. There's just so much stuff there's so many toys like actual physical toys Mm. it's not just cgi duplicates of things that go on forever it's actually there it's quite astounding playstations as far as the eye can see (laughs) (laughs) well see this is the problem is that he's still offering the same line of primary colored wooden toys in 1985 (laughs) (laughs) yeah This is a really stable marketing (laughs) ploy. Yeah. It does feel like that sort of classic take on on kids and toys and stuff. It doesn't feel like an 80s movie in that respect. Like it feels like a 60s movie pushing all these traditional toys. Mm. I don't see anything made of plastic. Mm. I don't see any talk about video games or computers or anything like that. So it feels almost timeless. It like doesn't feel like it's an 80s movie. No, it does feel like an 80s movie in that a lot of 80s films at the time were concerned with, you know, the, the, the takeover. Greed is good. Yeah. Reagan and corporate America. That said, you have got that kind of undercurrent of um, capitalist kind of uh, concern with the whole sort of patches automated toy production system mm. and, yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. concerns about quality and all of that, you know? Yeah, it does, yeah. yeah. Any attempt at modernising the traditions of Christmas results in disaster. <laughs> Absolute disaster. Yeah. Kids crying on the street on their broken <laughs> tricycles, nearly getting hit by trucks. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> 
Um, but yet, yet, this film seems to be quite blatantly sponsored by very big companies, like the, all the yes. Coke, the <laughs> Coca-Cola, a lot of Coca-Cola in the- <laughs> McDonald's, yeah. there's a beer company. <laughs> I remember loving the McDonald's scene when I was a kid, because I guess McDonald's seemed like this fantastic American import at the time, and mm, we were like, wow, these restaurants, and you can go there and have burgers, and, and then now you see it and you realise, oh, that's quite obviously just recreated in London, I guess. But, you know, it was great at the time. It was, yeah. No, I I remember it was quite a treat to be taken to McDonald's when you were an 80s British kid (laughs) because all we had was Wimpy, which was just, it wasn't up to it. And you only got it when you were on a motorway, really. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. So mechanisation is bad. Commercialisation is bad. And Santa is good is basically the theme of this movie, but at the same time, it is a massive, glossy commercial product underpinned by <laughs> product placement everywhere. Yeah. And the producer is quite defensive about that in the interviews. Like, well, what do you want? I've got to sell this thing. You know? Right. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a bit of a dichotomy. Mm. <laughs> yeah, it feels very much like a Salkine production, doesn't it? Mm. It's got all the hallmarks of their approach to things, which is to say they have this epic vision, but then they'll realise it in sort of slightly cheap ways. And I think it feels very much like the way the Superman movies deteriorated over time, you know? Yeah. Like Richard Donner was closing down 42nd Street to shoot Superman, and then, like, by part four, they're in a shopping centre in Milton Keynes, you know? It's, <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it feels very much like it's going that way. Right. Yeah, it does. And it, I don't know, culturally it seems quite odd as well, because, like as you say, the mean streets of New York do not really seem like they're New York. It's very... Pinewood Batman 89, isn't it? It's <laughs> occasional yellow cabs will drive past. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but the characters in it, so you said you related to the younger characters in it. So we have as audience identification figures Joe, the homeless New York kid who looks like a Dickensian street urchin. <laughs> I know. I'm not sure <laughs> this is an accurate portrayal of homelessness on the streets of New York. And uh, Cornelia who, in a shock twist, turns out to be the niece of BZ, which they hold back until sort of three quarters of the way through the movie. But what a reveal, though. It's a great (laughs) reveal. (laughs) (laughs) He couldn't be any more the cackling villain if he tried, could he, when he spins round in that chair? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he's he's the type of villain you see in in, in animations that parody villains, like where, where they just take it too far. And that's just John Lithgow in this in this movie. He he just takes it way too far. He does. But anybody particularly engaged with either of those two characters' stories? I mean, it, the solution at the end for both of their problems, which is that they both essentially end up orphans, is that they live in the North Pole. But I think they say that they're only going to live there for a year. Yeah. And then they just dance around with the elves. <laughs> yeah. Is yeah. that a good ending? Yeah. It, it's some some form of child abduction going on there. <laughs> yeah. I'm not quite sure how that's going to play out with the authorities, but um, yeah, they seem happy. <laughs> I found the last 10, 15 minutes of the movie very rushed. Mm. Like it felt like, what? That's the end? 
We just fly around with with the explosive candy canes. We do the super looper duper thing. Yeah. uh, And then abduct two children and then dance around credits. Like, it was like, what? Yeah. And also BZ floats into space. (laughs) Okay. Into the phantom zone, yeah. (laughs) If ever there was a pointless sort of uh, idea for the finale, it's the super duper looper, which I think is utterly unnecessary. Yeah, I didn't understand it. Why would he need to circle in order to catch them? It makes no sense. He can just wait underneath. (laughs) It's it's completely pointless. And also, earlier on, when they set up the super duper looper and demonstrate that they can't quite do it, they dive bomb the World Trade Center. And you're watching it now and thinking, oh, this does not age well. (laughs) Absolutely. Mm, Yeah, yeah. But speaking of the super duper looper, the reindeer. Now, I'm going to plant my flag in the case that uh, the reindeer are the best characters in the movie. They're great. They are good. They are good. The animatronic reindeer, they're mocked in one of the uh, contemporary reviews I read, but I actually think the puppeteering and the animatronics in these things is pretty good. They don't anthropomorphize them too much. It's just enough to be kind of cute and funny and the lengths they went to to actually get reindeer involved in the movie in the first place, it's, mm. it's pretty impressive. The whole process took a year, didn't it? Yeah, so they had to train them and also wait for the antlers to grow mm. because they lose the antlers every year, wow. which I didn't know. Yeah, so they had to go to Lapland and I think they bought 12 and saved them from being slaughtered because they're primarily just, you know, cattle there and brought them back and trained them because they're not domesticated at all. They do not like working in groups to pull sleds. Mm. So it took like six months of rigorous training in England to get these reindeer to do anything. And then they were just waiting for the antlers to grow and then filming like crazy while they had the antlers because they drop off after a while. Yeah, you, you do have a surprising amount of knowledge about reindeer, though, Conrad. I'm impressed. <laughs> <laughs> Are you entirely elf taught? Or? Oh, <laughs> they do a lot of that in the movie, don't they? Mm, so I counted it. I think there are nine elf puns that come from <laughs> Dudley Moore. Don't be elf conscious. Gives me a real feeling of elf confidence. I'm entirely elf taught. They need some elf control. Oh, I, the list goes on. Yeah, but so yeah. Many. it's elf explanatory. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of grown worthy, but I guess as a kid you lapped it up. Mm, of course. Mm. How do we feel about uh, Dudley Moore's elf character? Apparently in the original drafting of the script, what they were going for, he was supposed to be called Scratch. Right. And he was supposed to be modelled on the fall of Lucifer as an angel from heaven. <laughs> okay. Hence BZ <laughs> is a reference to Beelzebub. Wow. Uh, and that's the only bit that stays. And uh, Dudley Moore changed Scratch to Patch, which was his nickname for his son. So that softened all of that. But essentially, that's what it's supposed to be. He's supposed to be a fallen angel who's uh, trying to win his way back into heaven. There you go. (laughs) I I wish John Carpenter had got his hands on this movie when I hear that, because maybe it would have been a a slightly darker, more interesting... Yeah, oh, yeah. piece of work. I know, it's amazing. They offered this to John Carpenter first. <laughs> well, we might have got Kurt Russell as Santa even sooner if that had happened. Oh, yeah. I know. Ah. Yeah. Would we have had Goldie Horn as Mrs. Claus, though? <laughs> Quite possibly. <laughs> <laughs> Were they together then? 85. When did they do Overboard? Uh, 
Yeah, it was around that time, wasn't it? Yeah. Sort of like, a little bit later than that, maybe? I think they might have been an item. I quite like those Kurt Russell, Netflix, Santa Claus movies. The first yeah, one, no, anyway. Yeah, they're very the, entertaining, yeah. The first one's good. But yeah. I, think one's I could good. never imagine yeah. John Carpenter listening to the Salkines, though. I mean, he's far too prickly for that, isn't he? Uh, no, I think he was straight out the door to begin with, I think, because he wanted control and he wanted control over the soundtrack. And, yeah, they just got rid of him because of their experience with Richard Donner. They did not want to deal with an auteur. Of course. So mm. they got Giano Swark. I'm, I'm probably not pronouncing that right either. But he's, I kind of think of him as a journeyman director. He was brought on to Rescue Jaws 2 after it was struggling. Mm. He did Somewhere in Time, which I'm enormously fond of. And this. So those are the sort of three films that I primarily know him for. And Supergirl, Supergirl of course. Yeah, yeah. But there's no directorial style at work here. I think he's mainly just a you know, somebody who can make sure that everything happens on time and looks reasonable. I don't think there's any great directorial voice going on here. Yeah, he, he, I looked to, yeah, his other um, his other works, he, he does a lot of TV, mm. like, a, a, like modern TV. So Yeah, like Grey's Anatomy or stuff like that. Yeah, a lot of like uh, sort of fantasy, sort of like some, he did Smallville as well, so another Superman <laughs> thing uh fringe and supernatural as well so like he seems to be doing like actually good shows i don't know what how he is and doing them but like yeah these are you know pretty respectable shows yeah i think he's just a journeyman director i think he's not going to improve a bad script but he's not going to ruin a good one so you get what you put into it i guess mm, yeah I, I certainly would have liked to hear john carpenter's score for this movie because it, it, <laughs> I, I doubt it would have been anything like mancini's score no <laughs> i can just imagine all those low synths when yeah, he's uh, yeah. doing his flying sequences yeah all in five four yeah, yeah. <laughs> So what do we think of the soundtrack to this movie, Henry Mancini's work? I don't know that composer that well. I, I think it's the jewel of the movie, to be honest. I have always loved the score to this film. I think it's really well thought out. The melodies are great. I like the way it combines with the pop stuff, like the Sheena Easton song, It's Christmas All Over the World. Mm -hmm. I think it just all works really well. A little bit of Alan Jones in there. Yeah. Which is another British reference, <laughs> I guess. Yes, a Welsh choir boy who'd become famous in the UK in 1985 when he recorded a new version of Walking in the Air, which is a song from the animated film The Snowman, which had become a big hit in the UK a previous Christmas, 82, I think. And his version was recorded for a Toys R Us commercial and it got to number five in the charts. Wow. Yeah, and I love the theme he sings at the beginning of Santa Claus the movie. It's another beautiful melody from Henry Mancini and the sentiment, every Christmas Eve we are part of a miracle. It's lovely, heartwarming stuff. Uh, yeah, I think it's it's terrific. And, and Leslie Bracuse was involved, wasn't he, in um, writing lyrics for this too? And he'd done all kinds of really good stuff. He did a musical version of Scrooge. That's right. He did, he did the Albert Finney Scrooge and he did uh, the Wonka songs as well, didn't he? Mm. Yeah, he did. I noted down that he also wrote the lyrics for Goldfinger and You Only Live Twice and for the Christmassy songs in John Williams' scores for Home Alone's 1 and 2. So no stranger to a Christmassy song. Yeah, really great. And I think that the music is fantastic. Apparently Freddie Mercury was going to sing It's Christmas All Over the World. Oh, wow. He was, yeah. He backed out at the last minute because they were overcommitted. Um, they were working on Highlander, so... <laughs> 
Right. Yeah. Okay. They were too busy. Interestingly, Leslie Bracuse, I found a quote from him. Unfortunately, he's no longer with us. We lost him last year in October at the age of 90. Hmm. And his quote is, uh, musically, regardless of the merits or demerits of the film, a golden opportunity was wasted on this motion picture. Never before had there been a major musical film about Santa Claus. And I campaigned incessantly for Henry Mancini and I to be allowed to take the rare chance a film offered to create a major song score. So he wanted it to be a musical. Oh, wow. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the sort of making toys montage and all of that stuff, I think, is superb. And, and it's been out on CD since, hasn't it? Um, if mm. people, you know, collect scores, they'll know that there was uh, it was not available for many, many years, and then it was released in kind of a deluxe box set. The first edition, I think, was done wrong, wasn't it? There was errors with the yeah. production of it, and, and then they, they withdrew it and then re-released it again at a later date, but... Yeah, it's a superb score, I think. If you want a you know, a Christmas score done by a great composer, that's probably as good as it gets in my view. Yeah, mm. very epic. Yeah, it's on my Christmas playlist. Yeah, I this, I mean the the it's one of those kind of larger than life scores as well. It really sort of really elevates all the scenes, especially all the the Santa's workshop scenes. It was funny watching the behind the scenes of the elves trying to do the passing of the presents in time and they just <laughs> couldn't work it out and they kept getting all mixed up and they just just couldn't work it out and the director was just standing there this guy doesn't get it he's never gonna get it <laughs> yeah i know he's really rude he says yeah. this guy's deaf he's never gonna get it <laughs> wow and he's just constantly you know smoking a fag uh, on set and oh stuff. yeah yeah everybody's smoking <laughs> around all that plywood it's a really I bad know. idea i know now it's time for Random Trivia! So Dan, what fascinating piece of trivia did you find glowing strangely underneath the tree today? <laughs> uh, well, did you know that, uh, this is for Star Wars fans out there, that, that John Lithgow did the voice of Yoda in the original radio drama adaptations of both The Empire Strikes Back in 1983 and The Return of the Jedi in 1996. Wow! I did not know that. I mean, apparently, apparently they got all the other actors to vo- do the voices. So all of them, Mark Hamill, everyone else. But Frank Oz wasn't available. So John Lithgow Weird. <laughs> stepped in. <laughs> John Lithgow has been Yoda. Wow. That, that man has range. I mean, he's been Winston Churchill. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Yoda. <laughs> I really, I really like him as villains. I really, really like him as villains, and in and, and serious movies as well. Like his villain in Cliffhanger mm. is great. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's just a, yeah. He does have a lot of range. He does. Yeah. I also had some trivia for oh, you. Yes. Some festive trivia. So Patch suggests that Santa's suit should be red rather than green while they're creating this character. Uh-huh. And it's often said that Santa's suit was green prior to his depiction in Coca-Cola advertising, but this isn't true. Oh, okay. So it's always been red. It's always been red. Mm. He was first depicted in a red suit with white trim by Thomas Nast, a German-born American cartoonist in the 1860s and 1880s. He was previously depicted in tan suits which, you know, tan suits, always scandalous. But Nast also depicted him in green occasionally. And Haddam Sundblom 
or Sonny as he was called, popularised the jovial grandfatherly figure that was used in Coca-Cola ads in the 1920s. But that came after, so Coca-Cola did not turn Santa's suit red. Oh, there you go. Okay, all right. It's apocryphal. Right. <laughs> and that's our trivia. That's our trivia. So is this still getting regular play at Christmas time in the Barber household? Have you introduced your kids to this? They have seen it, actually, yeah. yeah. My youngest daughter saw a bit of it last night. I put some clips on last night to remind myself and my youngest daughter was kind of a bit bemused by it but my older daughter who's like nine now she actually watched it quite regularly when she was a kid so she'd been introduced to it you know in that very british way of getting to see it every christmas wow yeah i find it slightly disturbing to watch now (laughs) oh really as be said there are just certain things about it that as you know as a kid you just kind of accept because you know that everything is about you, it's all about giving pleasure to you and you don't think about anybody else. But I watch it and I just feel like this is like a dystopian nightmare. <laughs> Maybe what? they did die at the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> and this is just I felt this like is their that. everlasting <laughs> yeah. nightmare. <laughs> I, I thought it was going to be like that, but then it skipped forward to the future. It's like, surely they're not just going to wake up at the end. <laughs> or, or, you know, or, or they've died. Or, like, I wasn't sure whether they've just, like, they've just gone unconscious and this was all a big fever dream. And then we're just going to wake up in the snow at the end no. and be like, oh, it was all a dream. This is their hell. They wake up and the elves say to them, no, you're going to stay and you're going to make toys forever. Yeah. <laughs> and you will never die. <laughs> and you'll never die. And time will stand still on Christmas Eve until you've delivered toys to every child in the world. I Can you imagine? <laughs> and it's particularly sad for him because the wife, the lovely Judy Cornwell, she says that her husband loves crafting toys for the children and seeing the joy on their faces. And now he's committed to an eternity where he's in a managerial role. He's not making toys himself anymore. And he has to give toys to children in secret and run away before he sees their reaction. Yeah, so yeah. it's just an endless purgatory for this poor man. <laughs> I think it's frightening. Wow. Yeah. When you put it like that, yeah. I'm wow. just dark. I can't help it. It's the sort of movie I've grown to love to hate, I think. Yeah. Because it was such a fun experience as a kid and then you know, it is disappointing when you come back to it and you, you spot all of those cracks in it, you know. So I have come to sort of, well, there are certain moments I appreciate, like, for example, that sort of season's greetings scene mm. where they all sort of look up and they wait for, like, this kind of barometric kind of moment to happen and snow oh, right. to fall yes, and then they, they right. all wish each other. It's all like, it's like this is the moment at which Christmas starts to happen and I think that was quite a nice touch. It's got moments which I think are mm. quite special but then there's so much in it that's unusual, isn't it? Like this sort of like Fordist production line that <laughs> that Patch <laughs> creates inside the workshop and then and like when when he he flies for the first time, he sort of takes a hard left, does he? Which I'm I'm quite sure is not a good idea on any runway, mm. you know, to kind of <laughs> to to build up speed and then turn left at the very end. Um, but yeah, there's all kinds of weird things like that in it that I sort of love to pick on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one thing I, I'd like to talk about is the magical dust. Yeah. So it seems to be the the thing that does the thing when they want it to do the thing. Um, and yeah, they, they feed it to children. 
And that's that's good. And they fly. Yeah, I know. There's a wonderful line from a piece by Terry Pratchett that I discovered recently, <laughs> a Christmas speech in 1985. Um, and he said, has anybody seen the new Santa Claus movie? It's pretty dreadful, except for the part where they feed the reindeer cocaine and they start flying. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's a key device in the movie, isn't it? Because without it, they don't get the whole sort of second act with the lollipops and the yeah. you know, the candy canes and everything. So Yeah, I was confused by that because I thought they were just going to make more toys, but then they're just making confectionery now. <laughs> and BZ's big plan to uh, launch Christmas 2 <laughs> oh, in <yeah>. March, <laughs> where everyone's just going to buy candy canes is that a thing yeah it's a doomed enterprise isn't it really mm. but he can't wait to bring out the sequel yeah, so. yeah. well as long as they're puce oh yeah yeah <laughs> yes like fuchsia but with a shade less lavender apparently yeah yeah and a touch more pink yeah <laughs> uh, he shames his co-worker that's that's another little 80s thing that's a little bit sort of yeah you're kind of shaming your male co-worker for being interested in the color pink mm, that's not that's nice right. well yeah i think uh bz sort of rubbishes almost everything that the towser character says doesn't he every time he, he shows any kind of moral or ethical concern he's like commies <laughs> yeah that's right cowards <laughs> Cancel my subscription. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The interplay between those two, it's Jeffrey Kramer, isn't it? Who I always remember as uh, Roy Schneider's sidekick in Jaws. That's right. And Jaws too, oddly enough. So Jano Swark and he had worked together before. Mm. So they kind of inject life into what otherwise is a fairly confusing second half mm. that then sort of wraps up all of a sudden with a car chase for no reason. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Santa really isn't really even in the second half apart from you know abducting joe or, or doing whatever yeah. doing with joe. <laughs> taking a homeless child for joy rides where he dive bombs the world trade center <laughs> oh, and then dropping him back on the street for another year yeah yeah i know back on the street <laughs> what a bastard <laughs> coming to you live from the movie oubliette theater it's the prestigious mobley awards Okay, it's a movie awards. It's where we present our favorite gift-giving parts of the film in a number of brightly prime-colored and spotty categories. Best quote. I'd probably have to go with um, BZ in the scene where he's talking with Patch and he's agreeing with everything he says. And he says, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh. Stop making me go, "Uh uh-huh, like some kind of a goddamn moron. That's my favourite line. It's so good. It's very funny. I mean, all the best lines are John Lithgow. Mm-hmm. It's true. It's yeah. true. Yeah. I, I mean, I've written down the one that, I mean, I'm I'm always sending gifts of it to, to you, Sai, which is John Lithgow going, that's it. We'll bring it out on March 25th and we'll call it Christmas 2. <laughs> <laughs> So oh, good. it's wonderful. Yeah, <laughs> I, don't, I mean, I have to agree with uh, with Simon about yeah that that line with the uh huh uh huh. It's it's <laughs> it's so good. But it just any any performance, pretty much. Like when when uh, Patch is trying to tell him about the the new product that he wants to sell, and he just give it away for free. And John Lithgow just like <laughs> retracts, and he just goes bright red, and he goes for free. <laughs> just so good. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's amazing how they do that. So I think he backs into a red yeah, light. He does so. making his red his face redder and redder. It's just it is a cartoon performance. Mm. It's so funny. Best hair or costume. I would actually go back to the ancient elf played by Bajess Meredith, who has such a prodigious beard that he's followed by a retinue of eight elves. <laughs> Who carry it like a train? Yeah, yeah, it's long. <laughs> yeah, there's no beat. There's no beat in that, is there? Definitely. No. Probably after amazing. after that, I'd have to say Cornelius Bob. That's a pretty sweet dude. It is. Yeah, <laughs> it is nice. Yeah. How about you? I mean, then? I I did quite enjoy the elves. I mean, they looked like clowns. Why are they covered in, in, <laughs> in polka dots? Most eighties moment. Maybe the McDonald's scene. Might be the most 80s mm. thing in this movie. Everyone's just having their Coke and their burgers. Um, yeah. If it's not that, it's probably that basketball scene where you see oh, yeah. that, that kid float up to the basketball <laughs> oh, ring yes. and it, everybody's wearing very much kind of like 80s hip hop kind yes, of clothes. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Just some graffiti and things as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, what's the, what's the 80s the start of um, like obvious product placement in movies? I feel like it was. I think so. I think so, yeah. Yeah, that was what I was going to say. I mean, apart from evil businessman is evil, because that yes. was... It was either an evil businessman or a property developer in the 80s that was that had to be destroyed in the third act. Mm. Favourite scene! Probably the season's greetings moment, I think, where they all sort of usher in Christmas. I think that's probably, uh, probably the best scene. Mm. Yeah. And it's a curious one, isn't it? Because there's no... For, for all the world building, they don't quite explain the law, why they're there, what it means, or anything. But still, it sort of hits you. I'm not quite sure why. It's a combination yeah. of the visuals and the music. It still Yeah, works. the visuals. Yeah, yeah. And, oh, I don't know, the, the prophecy as well. Everyone loves a prophecy. Mm. <laughs> Gotta have a prophecy. Yeah. Chosen one, <laughs> you know. <laughs> How about you, Dan? Um, favorites, uh, just anything with BZ in it. I mean, any, anything. That's what I wrote as well. <laughs> <laughs> Most cliche moment. Probably just Joe the orphan with the dirty face. That's yeah. Just, yeah. <laughs> fingerless, fingerless gloves, open fire in a trash can. You know, that's a great cliche. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've just yeah. got all kids seem to be orphans. Uh, I mean, Cornelia's an orphan as well. Like, what? Do we need two orphans? Like, just... <laughs> <laughs> well, clearly. I referenced something that we talked about recently, Dan, when we were talking about great film score cues. Uh, kids getting a joyride on a magical flying animal, ah, yes. um, which very popular in this genre. Yeah. So thinking about uh, Falcor and the never-ending story and E.T. and E.T. And more recently, Harry Potter on the Hippogriff. Yep. And Prisoner of Acraban, Azkaban, sorry. And um, yeah, and Henry Mancini rises to the challenge there. He does a really lovely cue mm. for that scene. Yeah. Best special effect. I thought the flying sequences weren't bad. I mean, some of the sort of blue screen close up stuff, it, yeah. you know, it, it's showing its age. Yeah. But Derek Medding's miniature work where you've got the fully animated reindeer and it's sort of in the middle distance or it's taking off or landing. All of that miniature work is, is it holds up really well. Mm, mm. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Yeah. And that, the but, combination of having those reindeer interact the way they do is makes it, doesn't it? It really sells it, I think. Yeah. No, my favorite special effect is the animatronic reindeer. Yeah, me too. 
definitely. Yeah. Favorite sound effect. Maybe the um, patches automated toy machine. You know when it can't get the screws in straight and stuff, and oh, it's yes. just chuck, <laughs> chucking out toys that are half built, and it's going boing boing boing. <laughs> yeah, I think patches uh, house of toys. Right. Yes. Yes. <laughs> My favourite actually was another m- machine of patches, which is the Patchmobile, because I love when he's firing it up and pressing all the buttons to get it to work. It's making all the same sounds that the supercomputer made in Superman 3. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> that make it sound like a re- an arcade game in a tacky British beach resort. <laughs> mm. Wow. Most funniest moment. It's probably just something with John Lithgow, isn't it? Yeah. Being, uh, being a, a cackling villain. Santa Claus yeah. is finished. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he excels at it. Yeah, we've talked about it already. It's the for free moment. <laughs> just amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we've mentioned my one uh, briefly as well. It's it's the reveal of of BZ being the the step uncle of of Cornelia. But I just, it's just so, like, evil in the uh, quotation marks. Like, because she, she walks into the room and she says, Merry Christmas, Uncle. And then a, this giant big leather chair swings around to reveal BZ in a suit smoking a cigar. And, and he says, it certainly should be. And then he cracks his knuckles as well. It's just like, wow, okay, you've just gone overboard on this evil but <laughs> i love it <laughs> yeah it's great oh my and that's our moobly awards mm. hi this is elizabeth arnois from one magic christmas and this is movie oubliette it's final verdict time. Should 1985 Santa Claus the movie be unearthed from the depths to be loved every year by all? Or should it be stuffed with explosive candy canes and shoved back into oubliette to blow up in darkness <laughs> never to be spoken of again? Uh, Simon, a beloved film of yours. Is, is this? Does it still hold up today? Oh, we've got to keep it, haven't we? I mean, it needs to be it needs to be taken out of the oubliette every Christmas Eve and played on British television. So <laughs> we, we have to keep it. Um, yeah, it's it's a movie that I love, but it's more these days I love to hate it. But that is fun too. So I, I say keep it. <laughs> okay. Mm. For my part, I would say I, I can see all the faults in it, especially as an adult. You look back on it and. It's, it's a film of two halves. The first one is is just so po-faced and serious, it's really difficult to watch. And then the second half, which you thought was the fun part as a kid, just doesn't make any sense. And the conclusion, as you said, Dan, is really rushed. The theme seems to be that commercialism is bad and then it rams Coke and McDonald's <laughs> down your throat constantly. <laughs> I mean, the whole thing is just a, sh- a shoddy, gaudy monstrosity. But for some reason, I absolutely love it. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I don't know. I'm just one of those weird English people that John Lithgow keeps bumping into. And and God bless him because he's amazing in this movie. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I say keep it and and Merry Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, I mean that's two against one. But I I mean I, I as as someone that doesn't like Christmas movies, it's a pretty fun movie. Uh, uh and and 
I mean, maybe it's because of of John Lithgow, like his his character is just outstanding. Um, but it it, it mm. is so magical as well. Comparing it to One Magic Christmas, which didn't have a lot of magic and it was very very <laughs> bleak, uh, with with some yeah. more child abduction as well by a by a very uh, questionable man in in, in a raincoat. This, Harry, Harry Dean Stanton yeah. looking like a serial killer. You know, this in comparison is everything I sort of wanted in One Magic Christmas. It's definitely magical. It's got a lot of humor, and yeah, the ending's a bit strange. But you know, <laughs> all Christmas endings are a bit strange, I guess, and and everyone's happy and they dance around, and that's 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 the spirit of Christmas, isn't it? Yeah, child abduction. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I, I think perhaps the best thing about it is that they felt it necessary to put the movie in the title. I know, just in case. Why? Why? <laughs> just in case we we confused it with the real Santa Claus. I don't know. <laughs> because uh, when you normally add on the movie, it means it's from something. So this is Santa Claus a TV show and this is the movie of that TV show, but there, there isn't. This is a standalone <laughs> movie. Why? Well, to touch the hearts of all the children and the inner child in all of us, Dan. I mean, <laughs> maybe, maybe. Yeah. Okay. So, I think we're letting it go. <laughs> Get ready for Christmas too. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Off it flies. <laughs> well, Simon, it's been amazing having you with us again. Where can people follow you and, and hear more about your your love of Santa Claus the movie? <laughs> well, I don't tweet about it very regularly, but um, <laughs> no. um, you can find me at Simon Barber on, on most of the socials um, and simonbarber.com. And my podcast is at sodajerker.com. Great. Marvelous. Everyone check that out. And if you haven't seen it already, check out the YouTube panel that we did with Simon about the movie House. Oh, yeah. Yes. That was really enjoyable. Yes. Yeah, we had a lot of fun with the uh, the writer, Ethan Wiley, and it was a really entertaining time. So check that out on our YouTube channel. Yes, and while you're at it, uh, you can also follow us on our, all our socials, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Reddit. Uh, we are Movie Oubliette everywhere. And you can also email us at uh, movie.oubliette at gmail.com. And if you'd like to support the show, head on over to Patreon, where for as little as a dollar, you can nominate and vote on films for us to cover in future episodes and get access to extended portions of our episodes. And for $5, you get access to our exclusive monthly minisodes and extended interviews with our special guests yes yes uh those that don't know our, our movies are very long uh they are uh, they end up being like maybe 10 12 minutes in the episode <laughs> but for all patrons they're, they're uh, 30 to 40 minutes we always uh, go on a bit of quite a few tangents yes tangents honorable mentions and random giggling as well so yeah check mm-hmm. that out <laughs> uh, and if you want to see our logo on everything uh, we do have merchandise as well at Redbubble. Mm, the ideal festive gift <laughs> uh, we don't have festive colors though it's all just black but yeah, it's gift giving, right? <laughs> it's it's for everyone out there who, like me, likes a good dark festive horror film. Yeah. <laughs> well, Simon, it's been fantastic being with you again. Well, thanks for having me, guys, and Merry Christmas. Great to see you both. Yes, Merry Christmas yes. to you too. 
Okay, listeners, have a Merry Christmas if you celebrate Christmas uh, or whatever you celebrate. Have some time off and eat lots of food and <laughs> give lots of presents to everyone. Yes, and don't abduct any orphans. <laughs> See you in the new year. <laughs> Goodbye. Bye. We review of films others tend to forget. Come with us and open up the movie you'll Christmas, everyone. Do you want some cookies? They're from Bloomingdale's.